0: Just resounding response. Good morning. <laughs> you. Welcome back. I'm just going to take it that it's because the food is that good. This is one of my favorite things that they serve here. This is, remember in Genesis? It was here for Genesis. When Jacob served, sold his birthright, this is what he sold it for a pot of red like that That's all right. <laughs> a pot of, as the Hebrew said, red stuff. I really do love that stuff. I'm it to go container. So, um, I was out last week. I was vacationing with my family. Uh, I believe Alan stepped in and covered for me. Hopefully he did well and didn't spout any heresy. If so, let me know. I'll get on to him. Uh, no, he's a good guy. And I was uh, really thankful that he uh, comes in when I can't make it. Um, a couple of announcements real quick. Uh, I have on the table there my laptop. If you don't have your email address and you want to be on the email list, I'm putting together a list of uh, emails. And I'll send out spam and I will blind carbon copy everybody instead of copying everybody's email. But it's just so that if there are thing- things like emergency updates or if you talk about something and I have like an article or something that goes into more detail, I can send that out instead of uh, having to try to give it out here. And it's just a way to stay in touch. Since not everybody can make it every week, because we're busy and we all have schedules and work meetings and bosses tell you to stay late and all this kind of stuff. So that's just a way to help better keep in touch. Um, Point number two, remember always, the food is provided here for free, but the workers in the back, we like to treat them well. So that's what this donation box is for. All of the money goes right to the ladies who fix this food for us each week work hard and very much deserve it. So bless them with that, either uh, before or after. Third point is, I put on the tables for you a flyer. Uh, a lot of people ask what I do for a living, and I say which day it uh, I'm either drawing, or I'm teaching the Bible, or I'm doing jujitsu, and one of those three, or all of those three on some days. But uh, one of the ways that really helps my ministry, this teaching ministry, this is a part of what I do, uh, one of the ways that really helps it is that yeah, I have a, a handful of monthly supporters that help and contribute to the ministry of the Bible. my teaching ministry. And um, on the flyer, I have ways that you can do that. If you like this Bible study, if you want to make sure it continues, one of the easiest ways to do is to become a monthly supporter. It's set up. It's through PayPal. Ten dollars a month, twenty-five a month, fifty a month, a hundred a month, ten thousand a month. I won't stop you. Whatever you want to give. Um, but it's really helpful. I know a couple of you here are monthly supporters, and some of you here are like one-time supporters. Every now and then, you, you give given generously, and that's really helpful. But all of you who are type A people know that knowing your budget each month is very comforting. <laughs> so uh, for five years now, I've been living month to month. Just God's provided, but it's nice when I know he's gonna provide this way a little bit more this month. Um, so if you feel led to do that, or if you know someone who's looking for something to support beyond their local church, get to your local church first. We're not a church; this is an uh, outreach ministry. But if you're looking for that, uh, just I could definitely use that help. Um, definitely, very much so. Could use some financial support. But God's blessed you, and you want to return that. I'm not promising a seed miracle. If you sow into my ministry, <laughs> I'm not going to say God's going to give you a jet or a mansion yeah, or health and wealth. And wealth. <laughs> None of that. So, um, but you will get a couple of resources that I put out if you wanted. And you will know that you're helping a starting artist slash Bible teacher. So with that being said, let's get into the Bible teaching part. Two weeks ago, we started in Exodus in the Covenant Code. This is the part where, let's get back on track. Israel has camped around the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain with the elders of Israel. God has appeared on the mountain in fire and earthquake and lightning and thunder and cloud and all of those things that God does when he shows up in the Old Testament, which are called theophanies, appearances of God. And it's this incredible moment and God is making the covenant with Israel. This is Israel's wedding. The prophets will look back on this and describe this event as Israel's wedding when God took his bride into the wilderness and took her to himself as his bride. This is the wedding ceremony. These are the vows, so to speak. God is making the covenant with his people as a nation, and he's saying these are the the kind of laws that I'm giving you, and he started with the 10 words. Some people call them the Ten Commandments, but the Hebrew text calls them the Ten Words. And he gave them the Ten Words that covered all aspects of their society, from their vertical relationship with God, to their horizontal relationships with one another, to their inward relationship with the concept of coveting in their heart. So the Ten Commandments started with loving God above all else, and it ends with don't covet anything of your neighbors, which is a way of reflecting love of neighbor so they're kind of bookended within that now the next section of the covenant code after the people freaked out and said this is really scary because God spoke those 10 commandments to them they weren't written down on stone and then Moses gave them to the people God audibly spoke those 10 commandments to the people that gets lost sometimes in the movie versions they heard the 10 commandments they freaked out as we all would if God spoke audibly to us and they said Moses you go talk to God because This is too much for us to handle, and we're afraid we're going to die. So Moses went up further onto the mountain, into the cloud, and and had this face-to-face meeting with God. And as the mediator between God and the people, Moses received now this expansion of those Ten Commandments, which is this Book of the Covenant. This is the outworking of the Ten Commandments into the society that God wanting to make Israel when they get into the land. All right, this is, this is, Israel is camped in Mount Sinai, they're in modern Saudi Arabia, it's down here, and they're gonna go straight up into the land, and they're gonna take the promised land. This is God's plan. Now, in the book of Numbers, that plan will get derailed for one generation. But right now, the plan is go into the land, you're gonna exercise my judgment on the Canaanites, and you're going to take that land from the people who I'm judging who it is going to vomit out, which are the Canaanites, and you're going to live in that land, but you're not gonna live as the Canaanites lived, and you're not gonna live the way the Egyptians lived, you are going to be different. You're gonna be holy, and your purpose is gonna be to reflect my relationship with you, so that all the nations will look to you. The land of Canaan was at the crossroads of three continents. So all of the nations would look to Israel, and the plan was that they would see Israel's relationship with God in this covenant, and be drawn to want to know that God and to come to have knowledge of that God through a holy set-apart people. That's the plan. Going all the way back to Genesis 12, that's the plan. So God's promise, I'm going to reach the world through the offspring of Abraham. That's an unconditional promise. Then as we go on through Genesis and now in Exodus, we see that that promise is going to, God's going to say, I'm going to fulfill that promise now through a very conditional covenant. The promise is unconditional. It's gonna happen through the seed of Abraham. But now God's gonna give a certain segment of the seed of Abraham, this nation, these people, Israel, a chance to be the vehicle through which that promise gets fulfilled. Now fast forward to the rest of the Old Testament, they're gonna fail at that. They're gonna reject those promises and they're going to forfeit their destiny as the vehicle through which God's gonna redeem the world as a nation. However, that promise he made to Abraham is unconditional and it will be fulfilled and an offspring of Abraham will be the means by which God redeems the world. And so God will tell Israel later in the prophets, no, I'm gonna do what I intended to do, but it's gonna be through you as a transformed people, not you as you are currently right now in the land of Canaan. And that's where a whole new covenant comes into play and Jesus reconstitutes Israel around himself, the one true Israelite. And then he fulfills all of those promises that God had been making for centuries in the Old Testament. So that's where everything's headed, that's the big picture, and that's what we always have to keep in mind. Otherwise, we get sidetracked into all of these things of God making these promises just to Israel because he likes the Jews better than all the other people he hates. That's not the case. The purpose of Israel always was to be a missionary people, always. And the part that we are in right now, the section of their story we're in is where God is carving them out as a special nation that he's gonna put in a particular land so that they will live in that land in a certain way that is both similar to and vastly different from the surrounding nations. So the laws that he gives them, we saw them two weeks ago and the week before that, he's gonna teach them things they already know within their society, but he's gonna teach it to them in a different way. So for instance, they already know what indentured servitude is. We talked about how slave is too strong a word, but servant is too light a word for what the biblical term is, the ethod and the amah, the maidservant, the manservant and the maidservant. It's indentured servant, but a little more than that but not slave like we think of slavery because it wasn't that way. You weren't about to kidnap, you weren't about to sell people, you couldn't keep, you know, it wasn't a slave trade. That was illegal under Israel law. So we don't really have a word for what that type of thing is, but the ancient Near East people did. They knew very well what this type of servitude entailed. And for the ancient Near East, these servants were their property. No ifs, ands, or buts. You sold yourself into slavery to pay your debts, I own you. I do what I want to you, you have no say in the matter, and you have no rights because you are no longer human. So then we see God coming along with Israel's law, taking into account this concept of slavery in the ancient Near East, servitude, whatever you want to label it, and saying, no, no, no. They are people because you yourselves were slaves in the land of Egypt, and yet you were my people. So your Evans and your Emma's will have certain rights. If you mistreat them, they will go free you forfeit your right to own a slave if you damage them. So that mitigated all of the things in the ancient Near East where they could just kill a slave and no big deal. Um, He gave them laws about how they were to treat women in their society. In the ancient Near East, again, there was one way you treated women. They're the property of the father, until they're old enough to become the property of the husband. That's just how it was. Marriages were financial transactions, and families were compensated for losing the family farm worker. The woman that they lost whenever she married and moved in with a husband. So there was a transaction there. Um, there was a status there. Uh, well if you if you attained a wife and you didn't like her, just kind of let her go, sell her as a slave and get a new one. That was common practice. All of these rules in ancient Eries and what God came along in the covenant law and says no no things are going to be different. Yes, your whole society and your whole structure as an agrarian nomadic people is based on this marriage being a contractual arrangement, families being priority number one, the reputation of the family, the well-being of the family, the wholeness of the clan. All of these things were still in play, so God didn't completely take Israel out of all realms and make them into a modern 21st century capitalist society. He worked into them and said, here's how how your laws are going to differ. Egyptian laws, from Hittite laws, from Canaanite laws. You're not going to be able to sell a wife into slavery if she displeases you and takes somebody else. No. If you choose to go that route, she remains your wife, and you remain providing for her because her well-being is your responsibility. You've taken on the covenant vow. You've gotten married. You have to keep them. You have to honor them. And there were circumstances later in Deuteronomy that it would come up for a divorce and things like that. There were circumstances but as jesus shows us in the new testament when he's asked about certain things that the law allows one of those being divorced jesus said yeah moses allowed these things but that was for your hardness of heart that was because you guys are sinful and the covenant allowed it for a time being but look back before the covenant to god's intended creation and see the true desire of god for what he wants you to be and what jesus does in that moment in the new testament gospels is he gives us a huge clue for interpreting the Torah, interpreting the law. And that huge clue is that it was temporary. It was not God's law for all people in all nations at all times. It wasn't. It was God's law for his covenant people in the second millennium B.C. in the land of Canaan as a formerly nomadic, agrarian society. That was the purpose of the law. Until the time in which God would bring forth the new covenant and come become incarnate and actually enter into human history as the Messiah of these people and then bring the new covenant into being and welcome all people into the family. And the rules would drastically get altered and look very different, but the spirit of all these laws would remain. That's what happens in the New Testament. So then now we stand on this side, looking back at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, through the cross, through the covenant uh, shift, that has occurred. And we look back at the law and we our job now is to do what Paul did and to say, here's the law. What was it teaching Israel about for God? Not how do I apply every law today in that setting? If you look at the New Testament, I have a whole section on this in my Bible for the rest of this course. we look at an example, specific example where Paul does this with the law in Deuteronomy about muzzling ox when they tread out grain. And he applies it to paying their pastors, which is just on the surface seems so weird but when you see how his logic works and how he's doing it then you understand oh okay so for the New Testament believer our goal is to look to these laws read these laws understand these laws in their context first as best we can and then ask what is God communicating to his people in that context and which of those principles carries over into our New Testament context And what you see is that God reveals himself and the type of God he is and the type of people he desires his people to be through the laws, but not by us taking those laws and applying them today or picking some that we like and applying them today. You know, we like this law, do not murder. Okay, that's a good one, so that's still in effect. But don't sow two types of seeds in your field. That's not in effect anymore. You know, we like the don't, you know the sexual morality laws. We like those, so those are still in effect. But the don't eat your shellfish, you know, don't wear garments of two types of thread. I like my bacon wrapped shrimp, I like my <laughs> cotton <laughs> polyester blend, those laws are out. It doesn't work that way. It's all or nothing. And for us in the New Testament, it's nothing because we don't keep those laws anymore. Instead, we look to those laws, we see the principles that those laws were communicating to God's people at that time, and we take those principles and apply them to us today. There's a really good book on this if you're really interested in how this works, you have questions about it, and it's called The Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. It's by Christopher Wright, Chris Wright. He's my favorite living biblical scholar. I had a chance to meet him in Bethlehem last year. Amazing writer. Everything he's written, I recommend 100%, but his book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, gets into all of this in more detail than you could ever desire. It's about 600 pages. Uh, (laughs) Highly recommended. if you ever have questions about it. However, we are in this section now. So last week, the section was about these laws and how they relate to people, persons, relationships. Now we're moving into this section, and specifically, capital punishment. and and capital offenses against the law. Now we're moving into the section uh, in the the covenant code that's gonna deal with, it's gonna move from capital offenses and the taking of life and someone murdering someone or accidentally killing someone. What do you do when someone dies and there needs to be justice? That's what the last two weeks ago session was about. Now we're gonna move into, okay, what if that death comes not through a human hand? What if it comes through uh, an animal? Now, for us, there are not very many bulls wandering around the streets here in South Park, <laughs> right? Go to India. The, the funny thing is, I go to India every year and teach, and it'll look like this. Not really, the landscape's not as nice, but you know, high-rise buildings. But there will be bulls wandering the streets because they get the right of way in India. So this would actually be a little <laughs> more applicable to my Indian friends than it would be to us in America. However. We want to look at this and see what God is communicating through these laws so we can see the type of God he is. He's speaking to an agrarian society. There were no tractors. There were no bobcats or backhoes. There were no road construction crews. If you wanted to dig a ditch, you did it with your hand or you strapped something to a big animal and let it drag it through the dirt. That's how it worked. So in that setting, Your hired hands, your workers, your servants, your your manservants, your maidservants, they were dealing with animals. Some of those animals were cute and cuddly, some of those animals were big and dangerous. Some had wool, some had horns. Makes a big difference. So they would encounter times when those animals would be uh, stolen, would be lost, would be killed by other animals, like predatory animals, uh, or would actually end up hurting people. So these are the type of laws now that God is giving to them, and this is where it's very different from our context. We just read over this and go, this is weird. I've never even seen a poem. I don't know how any of this works. What's going on? Uh, This is what God's saying to them. So he's going to start out with some laws that actually have parallels in the ancient Near East. The Babylonian laws and the Akkadian laws that were around the same time period that you can read on any library shelf of ancient Near East Volumes. NIV flips back and forth between bull and ox, and I don't know why because it's kind of confusing. The word throughout is bull. So they had laws for when a bull gores someone. Goring means the bull takes its horn and pushes it into you, and you die or your are injured it's what happens when the people in spain they do bullfighting and sometimes they miss and the bull gores them i secretly applaud because that's what they deserve <laughs> um, hey you want to poke a bull with a sword he gets to poke back with his horn and you don't get to complain if you die uh, but these kind of laws were what happens in those cases so we start in verse 28 of chapter 21 it says if a bull gores a man or a woman to death the bull must be stoned to death, and its meat must not be eaten. The owner of the bull will not be held responsible. So the first principle, if an animal kills a person, that animal dies. Now, we would think, well, what would the animal do to deserve it? Well, this is not about what the animal did to deserve it as much as protecting the rest of the people from an animal that has been shown to be dangerous. So an animal that has killed someone is an animal that must die. However, it's taken human life and God has established throughout scripture, all the way, Genesis, all the way up to where we are now, that human life demands uh, avenging. Human bloodshed demands that blood be shed of the one that took it. Human life requires some type of atonement or something. So very symbolically, the animal is not just killed, but it's killed in a way that states, that shows, that teaches dramatically, taking human life is not acceptable even for an animal. So it's stoned to death rather than butchered and the meat sold or eaten or whatever. It's like, no, this this animal actually killed a person and human life is so valuable that this animal's life will forever remain a testimony. You're gonna stone it, one, because it's an unsafe animal. So to put it to death, you're gonna do it from a distance. Two is it will be left with stones piled on top of it, which was a way of making a marker, making an identifying place It shows everyone that comes by, this animal took human life. This is what, take care of your animals, do not let them hurt other people, or else you will forfeit them. Your animal, now animals were, in in this society, animals were a form of currency. I mean, they were animals and God cares about creation and he has laws that are gonna protect animals and, and prevent them from needless suffering and allow them all these things that the ancient Near East cultures didn't allow, but he also knows that this is their primary form of currency. And so he knows that the loss of an animal is similar to us losing a truck or losing a valuable household you know, appliance, losing your refrigerator or something like that. And so it's a, there's a very stiff penalty if your animal ends up killing someone. It wasn't just like oh well bulls will be bulls no it was they're going to be put to death this is a danger to the society and god is about protecting human life if however verse 29 the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it pinned up and it kills a man or woman the bull must be stoned to death and the owner must be put to death so now if it comes that well, this is your bull, and it's shown signs of hostility in the past. Maybe it nipped somebody, maybe it bored somebody, and they didn't die. But it has shown to be dangerous, and you did not see to it that that animal was kept from doing it again. Your life is forfeited because you took the life of the person that died. We would call this maybe like negligent homicide or something like that. But it was the spear It was the death penalty. So even a secondary cause, if it was the person's fault, And they had been warned and they had known about it and still allowed it to happen. So God is building in a society where you're not only responsible for your actions, you're responsible for the actions of your farm implements, the actions of your tools, the actions of your property, and you are to make sure that everyone around you is secure. This is the type of society that God desires. So, verse 30, however... If payment is demanded of him, he may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. This is the exception, the last section of this said that if somebody intentionally killed someone, murder, homicide, if somebody killed someone, they could not pay a fine and walk. They were to be put to death. Premeditated murder, death penalty in Israel. However, this is the case where premeditated negligence death penalty, but because it wasn't directly the person killing the person, the family of the victim or the town or the community could say, no, we don't want, we don't think this person should die for this, but they will be fined for this. We will demand payment. And they can redeem their life. They can pay this, whatever is commanded, whatever the judges decide, and their life can be redeemed. So you an exception to when you cause someone's death through your own negligence. And uh, deserve the death penalty but it could be commuted so this is a case where in israel law judges were given a lot of leeway judges were given a lot of leeway in these laws in interpreting how they applied in different cases israelite law gives what's called casuistic law case law it gives an example of something and then it's up to the judges and the elders to extrapolate from that example how it would be ruled in everyday life right So it doesn't give exhaustive law, like we have today. We have whole libraries of case law. In our society, if it's not illegal, it's legal, right? That's why the laws are just so mind-bogglingly complex. You have to go to law school just to even appear in court with any sense of confidence. It wasn't like that in the ancient Near East. They gave example laws, and the judges were required to extrapolate from those what is best for the community, what is best for the family, what is just for the victim, what will restore the sense of shalom, the sense of peace and wholeness. That's where their verdict's headed. So then it says, verse 31, this law also applies if the bull gores a son or a daughter, if the bull gores a male or female slave. The owner must pay 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave and the bull must be stoned. So in addition to everything it said before, it made sure to say that this law applies also to sons and daughters. In the other ancient Near East Laws this wasn't the case. And it also applies to male and female servants. In the other ancient Near East Laws this wasn't the case. God extends these rights. So if all of this happens, this is the process. He's, he's showing the value and the sacredness of life. In addition to losing the animal, in addition to paying the fine, you also, to redeem your life, you also, if it's a male or female servant, have to pay the owner of that male or female servant because they have lost a worker through your negligence. So it was all those things plus plus an additional. So all of these incentives God's putting into place, not just to protect the weakest in society, but also to show the value of human life and the responsibility that his people are to have in looking after their community. Not just these little islands of individualisms, right? But rather looking out for everyone else, as well as looking out for yourself. So then, he goes on to say, verse 33, if a man uncovers a pit, or digs one, and fails to cover it, and a bull, and Iv says ox, I don't know why, but it's a bull, and a bull or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must pay for the loss. He must pay its owner, and the dead animal will be his. So in other words, you dig a pit, you don't cover it up, Whatever you're digging a cistern, maybe you're trying to dig a new well, just a lot of reasons to dig, but you don't put a border around it, you don't cover it up, bull wanders and falls into it, then the, the animal will die. You can keep the animal because it'll be your responsibility to get it out of your pit anyway, which is a hassle. So for all of that, you can keep the animal, you can keep it skin, it's meat, whatever, but you have to pay the owner for the animal that they lost because now they're out of the bull. So there's this sense of, it's not overkill, it's not like your life's not demanded for the death of the animal and, and you don't have to pay 10 of your animals for it, and it's not this vengeance law, it's restore, make things right. They lost an animal because of your negligence, you have to restore their loss financially. Goes on to say, if a man's bull enters the bull of another and it dies, they are to sell the live one and divide both the money and the dead animal equally. However, if it was known that the bull had the habit of boring, yet the owner did not keep it pinned up, the owner must pay, animal for animal the dead animal will be his. So we both have bulls. They're maybe, you know, plowing together. We we yoke them together to to dig a furrow. They don't like each other. Maybe it's mating season and they're buying for the cow of their choice, whatever. They start goering each other and and one dies. Well, we're both out. One of us is out in the animal. One of us still has an animal. But God says no, because the one that still has the animal is responsible for the animal. So what you do, you divide up the carcass of the dead animal. You both have its meat, its skin, its all of the, whatever you do with all the good stuff. And in the other animal, you have to sell it, and you can divide that money as well. So both people were treated fairly, even though there was a, an unevenness in what happened, one animal's were responsible for the other. You see in this, God's desire is to preserve well-being of everyone in a society where people share these things, such as their animals and their resources. Uh, verse 22 which is actually in hebrew verse 21 uh, chapter 21 verse 37 in english it's chapter 22 verse 1. there's a whole reason for that but we don't have time to get into it It says if a man steals a bull or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it he must pay back five head of cattle for the bull and four sheep for the sheep so now we're moving into from negligence laws now we're going to get into theft and property laws. Someone steals something. What do you do? Now we've moved from the, okay, these are the laws of government in your life, and now we're getting into, all right, but people also like to take stuff from other people. So how do we deal with that? Well, the principle he sets up at the very beginning here is, you steal a bull, you gotta pay it back with five head of cattle. You gotta pay it back fivefold. You steal a sheep, you gotta pay it back fourfold. Why the discrepancy? Bulls were more valuable. They were working and sheep were just producing animals. Bulls were working animals, so if you you got a bull stolen from you, you were out a lot more than if you just got a sheep stolen from you. So the penalty for somebody stealing a bull was a lot higher than for somebody stealing a sheep. However, what's interesting in these laws, and we're going to pick it up next week, these laws now that get into property, God's point is not punishment for the one who stole. I mean, that's in there. They have to pay back, they have to make restitution. They may even have to sell themselves into slavery if they can't afford to. God's concern is restitution for the victim. The one who lost, God is concerned that that be restored. And if the person who stole cannot restore it, then they must sell themselves as a slave to the person that they they stole from or to someone else who then pays the person they stole from. But what's fascinating is this is where biblical law is going to diverge radically from modern American law. There were no prisons in Israel. There were no jails in Israel. Locking someone up for a crime was not justice in God's eyes because they did not restore what was lost. That was justice in God's eyes. We have gotten into a case of punishment based justice, retribution based justice, versus uh, compensation based justice. And so this is where Israel law, Torah law, biblical law, rubs up against modern law. And it's kind of, it, it makes a tension. You know, All the people fighting to keep Ten Commandments in the courthouse don't realize just how far away our courts are from the very book that those Ten Commandments come from in many cases. <laughs> and this will be an example as we look at how property is treated uh, and how God deals with things like theft and robbery, breaking and entering, Uh, Self-defense, all of that fun stuff next week, though, (laughs) because we're two minutes over. So have a great week. Um, I'll see you next Tuesday.